The gospel reading this morning is from John chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 12. And this is the sermon text this morning. As I was reading it, it, it occurred to me and seemed a little bit funny that Jesus chose to manifest his glory through this first miracle um, because of a social and hospitality faux pas of running out of wine at a wedding. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and, this, and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and thank you that you have called us to gather together regularly to worship you, to sing praises to your name, to offer praises and, and, and requests to you, and to hear the reading and preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you would breathe life into this sermon today, that you would breathe the life of revival into this church, into our hearts, and Lord, help us, Jesus, to trust you with everything. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, as you might recall from my sermon a couple weeks ago, that real short one, um, chapter 2 begins a section, uh, chapter 2 of the Gospel of John here begins a section known as the Book of Signs. This title simply distinguishes chapter 2, this section, chapter 2 through chapter 12, as Jesus' public ministry. When he goes out and publicly shows himself to be who, who, uh, uh, the, the Son of God, the Messiah. Today's passage takes place, as Angela read, at a wedding feast. As I heard one preacher say, a big fat Jewish wedding. And just to give you an idea about, if you're not familiar with these ancient Jewish weddings, these ancient Jewish celebrations, I'm going to read a little bit about, just a paragraph about the celebrations back in Jesus' time. The celebration, it says, begin with the bride adorning herself, preparing herself to meet her groom. Once the bride was prepared, the bride, along with her family and friends, process through the town, arriving at the home of the groom, where she was announced and accepted with joyous celebration by all. It would be now that the wedding feast would begin, and unlike the three to four hour celebrations we experience here today, in the time of Christ, the wedding feast lasted at least a week. 
Seven days of celebration. Can you imagine? Finally, when the time was right, with great fanfare, the groom would come to his bride and carry her off to their home to consummate the relationship. And from that point, they would live together as one in covenant relationship of love. Now that sounds like a celebration, huh? Weddings were quite the deal. They were a big deal in ancient Israel, and in this Jewish hospitality culture, much was also expected of the families. The families of the bride and the families of the groom. So things like running out of food, running out of wine, would be a social disaster that would heap a burden of shame that that family would have to bear for years to come, perhaps for their life. Celebration sounds great, but bearing that burden of shame does not sound great to me because I know I'd be one of those that would not order enough wine or something. But before we get to the, to the wedding, let's just review where, uh, where we are, where we are and, and where we were in the previous chapter. In chapter 1, we see John the Baptist introducing Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now that's significant to this passage today. But we also see Jesus starting to call his disciples. He's calling uh, Philip, Nathaniel, Andrew, Peter, and I would imagine John would be in that list also. This title, Lamb of God, is significant to today's passage because John is communicating something deeper about Jesus through this story. If you notice, it, in fact, Gail asked me, uh, we, we talked about this a few weeks ago, about the succession of days that John mentions, the next day, the next day, verse 29 in chapter 1, verse 35 and verse 43, the next day, the next day, the next day. Usually when, when a writer mentions something like that, it is significant. It was hard to get a, 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 an agreement with all the commentaries I read. It seemed like everybody had a different opinion about this. But one thing I heard now, when we get into the beginning of this passage, we see at the beginning of chapter 2, we see on the third day. Now that kind of strikes a chord with us, doesn't it, when we're talking about Jesus. And it just so happens that, that some commentators believe, and I, I, I don't see a reason why not to, to um, this seems very reasonable, that with the Lamb of God, being the one who is to take away our sins, the one who is to be lifted up onto the cross, the sacrifice, introducing him as the Lamb of God was introducing Jesus as a sacrifice. That this third day is the day when he is glorified. That there is some significance to that third day that is happening at this wedding, at this feast where he is supplying wine for this great feast. Now, although some commentators suggest that this succession of days is the recreation of a seven-day, uh, kind of a, a recreation of the seven-day week, I like the idea that on this third day, the lamb that was introduced as the crucified sacrificial lamb is now being glorified and giving new life. So all of Jesus' signs that we're going to see, not only today, but the signs that we're going to see throughout the, the gospel, are pointing to a particular facet of his identity. All pointing to something different. Every sign, every miracle would, re re would reveal something more about him. In this narrative, in this story, we're going to see that by Jesus turning water into wine, that it's a sign that we can trust him with everything. 
that we could trust him as that sacrificial lamb of God. And the reason is because he feels all of our inadequacies. Also, he fills those inadequacies and he feeds our faith. So, this is a story about a wedding. Let's enter into this wedding. Let's head in and see what we see. Verse 1, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus were there, was there. So we see the mother of Jesus. And notice John doesn't call the mother of Jesus Mary. He refers to her in this way. Could be because there are other Marys, and he's, he's identifying her specifically as the mother of Jesus. Notice he doesn't call himself John either in his writings. Because I can imagine that would be confusing, speaking of John the Baptist and himself as well. But we see the mother of Jesus... And then we see Jesus himself at the wedding. Jesus and his disciples, but probably just those five disciples. So he just has a small band of disciples, if this is in succession of, of, of if, if this is a chronological account. And then we see servants serving people, serving wine, serving food. We see the master of ceremonies, known as the master of the feast. We see him there making sure everything is going well, making sure everything's running. And then we see some people with some concerned looks on their face. We see the mother of Jesus starting to talk to somebody and looking concerned. And pretty soon, she comes up to Jesus. And we can hear her say, they have no wine. And so what's Jesus say? Well, this gets a little confusing, doesn't it? How many get confused when they read this and see Jesus' response? Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Sounds kind of crass, doesn't it? First of all, to think that he's calling her a woman, it, 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 you know, the problem is we bring that language into our context. Um, you know, if we, if we called our mothers woman, you know, probably wouldn't get too far. I have a friend who called his mother pal one time and didn't get too far with that. But this is not, to give you some context for that word, woman, and that title, that Jesus also calls his mother woman in John 19 when he's on the cross. And he says, woman, behold your son. And to John, he says to the disciple, behold your mother. It's a respectable term. It's a respectable title to call her this. But it is a little removed from mother. There is some distance there. But then he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? He's saying, what business is this of mine? Which still doesn't sound very respectful. But what he's saying, and the point here is that he is saying that his business is of the Father's business. That when she's coming to him and saying, we have no wine, he's saying, I'm here to do the Father's will. The business that I am here, the business that I came to do is strictly the will of the Father. Now, one of the beautiful things about Mary is the first thing she does 
when she senses it, when she knows that there's a problem, when she knows that they're out of wine, the first thing she does is she runs to Jesus. And she really doesn't ask him to do anything. She just says they have no wine. She's coming to him with this problem. And then he says, this has nothing, or what business is this of mine? My hour has not yet come. This is another thing that could be confusing. What is Jesus talking about here? The hour or the time, depending on the translation, is referring to, he's referring to the time of his death, the time of his glorification. To give you some context for that, you can look at John 7, verse 30. There's a few times where he mentions it, but I'll give you three here. Uh, John 7, 30, uh, John 8, 20, and John 17, 1. John, uh, the ones in 7 and 8 say this, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. His hour of his death, his hour of being arrested and taken to the cross had not yet come. It wasn't his time yet. But in John 17, 1, that great priestly pr prayer, he says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven in the first verse. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. The hour has now come. And what Jesus was saying is, my work is to do the Father's will. My hour has not come. And perhaps that also meant it's not my time to be publicly doing signs and wonders right now. But also, as we see Jesus' response to his mother, it made me think about some other responses that we saw with Jesus. He's given some confusing responses to people's needs. Think about Lazarus that we'll see in chapter 11. What happened with Lazarus? Lazarus was sick. Jesus could have gone right away and healed him. But Jesus waited. And Lazarus' sisters were, where were you? Why didn't you come when we called you? It's confusing. I think he could say the same thing, because I'm here to do my Father's will. I'm here to glorify my Father the way my Father has called me to glorify him. I know you may not understand yet. I know that. But stay with me because I'm the resurrection and the life. What about the Canaanite woman in, in Matthew 15? When she's coming behind him saying, have mercy on me, Lord, my, my, my uh, the son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, crying out to him. Who knows how far she came to see the Savior, to see the Messiah, and to cry out for healing for her daughter. But he did not answer her a word. He ignored her. That's hard to understand, too. But he was here to do the Father's will. And if you read the rest of that account, he does engage with the woman and finds her faith to be remarkable. And he rejoices over her great faith. And with Lazarus, he feels the pain that the, that the relatives of Lazarus are feeling. In fact, he himself is feeling that pain and weeping. But what is first for Jesus is his Father's will to do the things that he was called to do. And then we see this with Mary as we're back at the wedding now. And Jesus gives her this answer. Then she does this. She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Obviously, she knew Jesus. And she knew that what he was saying was not an absolute no. He was saying, I'm doing my Father's will. But she obviously believed that Jesus was going to do something. Jesus understood the shame of this loss. He understood the culture there very well, and he understood that there was shame happening for this family. But yet, he was here to do the will of the Father, and if it was the Father's will to do something here, he would do it. This is something that Mary's response here is, is, is quite the point to this, to this story. Brian Chapel, I like what he says here. He says that Mary was willing to ask anything and yield everything. She was coming to Jesus with a concern. They have no wine. And then she was leaving it with him. And she told the servants, do whatever he tells you. I don't know what that's going to be, but listen to him. How do you come to Jesus? Do you feel the need to have a a more honorable request to Jesus? Something reasonable? Something that doesn't sound too selfish? Or do you feel free to ask him anything? To ask him anything, but then also to yield and trust everything to him. This was the spirit of Mary. To ask everything, anything, and to trust him with everything. As a man, Jesus was well acquainted with the inadequacies of the people at that wedding. He's well acquainted with our inadequacies. Scripture says that he was tempted in all ways like us. That's why Isaiah speaks of him as a suffering servant. He's well acquainted with our griefs, our shame. But through this sign, through this sign of changing the water into wine at this wedding, he is also demonstrating, he's giving us a sign that he not only feels our inadequacies, but he also fills our inadequacies. See, no explanation is given as to why the wine ran out. No one's one's pointing fingers. No explanation is given. It's hard to say why. Somebody might have just goofed. Somebody might have spilled a whole skin of wine or whatever they were carrying them in. But the grace of Christ doesn't ask who did it. Why? Who's to blame? Jesus was not basing his response on whether anybody deserved his grace or whose fault it was and they would be pointed out. He knew who was at fault. All of us. (laughs) Shame is born out of inadequacy or a feeling of inadequacy of of, of, of some type. Someone was to blame for not having enough wine, yet Jesus begins to work. This portion of the text shows Jesus revealing his role in bringing grace and bringing something better to replace the law that Moses brought. Remember, back in in chapter 1, verse 17, John makes it a point to say the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth 
came through Jesus Christ. He points that out. And now this part of the story, here we are. Now there were six, in verse six, now there were six water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Okay? So that's, well, 120 to one, uh, 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 180, right? As many as 180 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. They filled them up as high as they can go. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. It's interesting that Jesus chose these purification pots. That was no accident that these six purification water pots were there. Water used for the ceremonial cleansing to make yourself clean, to enter into the Lord's presence, to take part in particular rituals, to take part in particular practices and traditions. And Jesus, by pouring, the, by, by changing the water of those purification pots into wine, was saying something very strong against the law saying, I'm bringing something better. I'm bringing something to replace what you used to do because for one, that water never cleaned anybody. He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. You're clean on the outside, but inside you're like dead men's bones. You have death inside because that water has no effect on you. The purification, the sacrifices, all those things, none of that was effective. It was only for a time. Moses gave those things because it was only for a time. Through the sign of changing the water to wine, he was showing the law as obsolete, that we no longer needed those purification pots. We no longer needed that water to purify ourselves because something better is coming. He's introducing a new era of grace to fill the inadequacies that the law could never fill. No one is righteous. No, not one, says the scripture. All of sin and fall short from the glory, of the glory of God. But in Christ, the cleansing blood of Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in him. It's interesting that Moses, the one who gave the law, Remember what the first sign he did for Pharaoh? The first of the plagues was turning that sacred water of the Nile to blood, the blood of judgment. The law. But what did Jesus do? Jesus came and turned the sacred water of purification that those who were relying upon the law, and he changed it into wine, life-giving wine, wine that, that represented joy in the spirit, something better. Because he said, I'm going to cleanse you. You don't need this any longer. He's introducing a new era. Amos says this in, in chapter 9, at the end of Amos, he says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. 
There's joy, there's abundance, there's something better that's coming. Jeremiah says this in chapter 31, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. Over the grain, over the wine, over the oil, all flowing in abundance. Their life shall be like a watered garden and they shall languish no more. He says, I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Jesus was introducing a new era. No more purification pots. What's in those purification pots now is the joy of the Spirit. And verse 9 says this, When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. See, not everybody knew what was happening here. The servants knew, the disciples knew, but not everybody knew. This was not an openly public miracle yet. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely than the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Let me say this first, because I haven't said anything about this yet. This was wine. This was wine. This was wine that had alcohol content in it. And, but at the same time, I want to make sure that we understand, and I'm glad this was read today, Ephesians 5, says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. I've heard a lot of preachers spend a lot of time talking about whether this was wine and whether it, whether it was not wine and why it, why it wasn't wine, why Jesus was really would never drink wine. That's not the point. I don't want us to get hung up on that. This was wine, and Jesus was producing alcoholic wine for the people of that party to enjoy. Think about this. The person who screwed this up, the person who caused the, the, the party to run out of wine, the one who was going to be bearing the shame, was now getting honored. <laughs> the master of the feast is now saying, this is awesome wine. Why'd you save it till now? Nothing of his doing. The shame that he was, he was preparing to have to bear. He now was being bestowed with honor, with kudos, because he brought out this great wine. He was just saving it till last. Verse 11 says, this is, the fir this, is, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The sign pointed to many things, but it also, not only was it a sign showing that Jesus fills our inadequacies and that Jesus fills our inadequacies, but also that he feeds our faith. It's a sign that points to him. It's a sign that's not about the wine. It's not about the wedding. It's about Jesus and what he is about to do, what he's going to do. It's a sign that's pointing to where things were 
with the purification pots? It's a sign pointing to where things are, to where we have to deal with shame and grief and the inadequacies of our humanness. But it's also a sign pointing to where we're going. A sign pointing to a feast that one day we'll never have to deal with the shame and the inadequacies. Because he's coming to do away with all of that. Where we, where we will be enjoying the wine of the Spirit, where we'll be enjoying the feast together. This sign points to a new age, the coming of the kingdom of God, the era of grace. Another thing this, this sign recognizes is exactly what the disciples told Nathaniel. We have found the Messiah. We have found the one we've been looking for. The sign also points to the fact that Jesus cares about our shame. He cares about your shame. And nobody was asking questions. But Jesus cares about the shame that we bear. And he's telling us to bring our needs to him. And he is able to fill the inadequacies that we so long for. The lamb who is acquainted with our grief, who knows our shame, has fulfilled the law and given us the new wine of his spirit. He has filled his people with righteousness and joy. See, the beautiful thing about this, this being about a wedding feast and, and wine is that Jesus gives joy. I'm sorry, but a wedding full of grape juice doesn't really sound very joyful. Jesus is the giver of joy. The Savior who cares about your shame, your family, your job. He cares about us. He cares about this church. He calls us to boldly bring anything to him because he can take it. To ask him anything, but to also yield everything over to him. To trust him with everything. Can you feel the peace and the joy in being able to ask him anything and then to just allow him to have everything? Can you feel the peace of that? Knowing that he has you, believing it wholeheartedly that he has you in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of the shame. Because in Christ, you and I, we are no longer inadequate. We're no longer inadequate to be in his presence because he has filled us with the righteousness. If we called upon him, all of the sin, all of the shame is gone in his eyes. He has filled us with a righteousness that cannot be outdone. A righteousness that gives us freedom to be in his presence. Freedom to confess our sins. Freedom to confess what a mess we are and freedom to ask him anything that is on our heart and to trust that he will do what is right. Brothers and sisters, may we pray together and join together that we may one day be at that place where we can trust God with everything. 
And may grace and peace do that. Amen. Pray with me. Jesus, help us, Lord. Help us in how we are reticent to trust you. How we hesitate in trusting you with everything that you have given us. Help me in my weakness to do that. And help us all to encourage one another to bring all of our requests before you, to be thankful for all things, and to trust you as our God and our Savior. In Christ's name, amen.